One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today we are talking about, honestly, one of my favorite gaming franchises of all time, but a game in and of itself that turned the shooter, turning into a looter shooter, on its head and gave us millions and millions of guns instead of just those, what, 30 guns other games gave us? Yeah, man. What was really fun about this game is just being able to kind of not only build your own style and class, but like you said, to just have those options available to you, you could really play this game any way that you wanted to. It is. And this, of course, you all know what we're talking about, the looter shooter granddaddy Borderlands. And so, yeah, Borderlands allows you to do that, giving you four different classes to choose from and numerous amounts of guns from different manufacturers in the game that all had specifics. But each one was looted either from a fallen enemy, from a random trash bin, these different weapon chests that honestly, I think, made the game. And not only that, the one major thing that made this game was giving it that comedic flair. Absolutely. Some of my favorite games from around this time had that comedic flair that I hadn't really seen too much of. You know, there are games out there. There's, there's the Grand Theft Autos, but then there's the Saints Row. You know, there's some mm-hmm. kind of, there's just this parallel between the two that I think was really unique for Borderlands, very different for shooters when we're in this era of Call of Duty and making things as realistic as possible. Yep. Then Borderlands comes out and just kind of sets itself apart. It absolutely did, because even at this time, and we did have Fallout that did give us a little bit of that, but it was on that same color palette. And Borderlands, in all fairness, did start with that. With those browns, those grays, the drabness, the, the essence of no color. You know, we see Borderlands flipping that over and saying, hey, we got to be different. How can we do that? And so let's get into the episode, Derek. Let's talk about it. And how did this really come about? Borderlands is an RPG looter shooter developed by Gearbox Software and published by 2K Games, released on October 20th, 2009. You play as one of four characters, Roland, Lilith, Mordecai, and Brick. Each of these characters are of a different class, Soldier, Siren, Hunter, and Berserker, respectively. This offers the player the ability to choose their playstyle. If they want to be a sniper and use long-range rifles, for example, then the Hunter class is for them. If they want to get up close and personal with their enemies, then the Berserker is the way to go. Uh, That's the Derek way. That is the Derek way. (laughs) Whoever the player chooses, they arrive on Pandora searching for a legendary vault which is rumored to have bountiful wealth inside for whomever is bold enough to find it. The journey won't be easy, though. 
Numerous enemy types stand between the player and endless wealth, such as the rat-like skags to psychos, which are the more human enemies. There are also badass enemy types, which are much stronger versions of the opponents in the game. Players are not alone, though. Assisting them throughout their adventure is Angel, a mysterious character who guides them throughout the dangerous wastelands of Pandora, and a cute little robot named Claptrap, who is one of the more humorous characters in the game. Players have access to over 16 million weapons in the game, such as pistols, rocket launchers, automatic rifles, shotguns, and sniper rifles. It is estimated that one would have to play for six years or more to find all of them. Again, that, that reiterates what I'm talking about, is having all of those weapons available and being able to pick your class. And within each class, you have like a subset you can go. And you can build it out with different experience points and different vault points along the way. Now, I'm assuming you played this game for six years and you found every single weapon. Yeah, we're actually recording this on day <laughs> one after six years. So I'm going to actually just list off every single weapon. And uh, I'll just give like, you know, a small nugget, a hashtag detailed <laughs> walkthrough of every gun. So yeah, we'll be here for about another six years recording. Sweet. And yeah, we'll see you guys on the other side. No. So let's, let's talk about the studio uh, Gearbox and, and kind of who they are and how it led them to here. Gearbox Software was founded by Randy Pitchford, Brian Martell, Stephen Ball, Landon Montgomery, and Rob Eronymous on February 16, 1999. The five developers all knew each other through Revel Boat Rocker, a game development studio founded by Billy Zelsnack and Zach Zelsnack and largely made up of former 3D Realms employees, which dissolved shortly after their first game. The studio's first project was working on the Half-Life series, porting the game to consoles and creating the expansions Opposing Force, Blue Shift, and Decay. They would also continue to work with Valve on Counter-Strike Condition Zero. Next, working on other IPs, they ported Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3, Halo Combat Evolved, and James Bond 007 Nightfire to the PC. Though Gearbox was creating a strong reputation as one of the go-to developers for ports, they wanted to move beyond working on other IPs. This led to developing Brothers in Arms, Road to Hill 30 for the Xbox, PlayStation 2, and PC in 2005. With years of experience working in the FPS realm, they were ready to tackle their next big IP. So obviously a lot of experience there. I mean, I had no idea that these guys brought Halo to the PC. I mean, that's huge in itself. Yeah, they were, they were amazing at creating these ports. I mean, that's also a whole nother can of worms to talk about what's the true one. You know, the Xbox One, Gearbox changed way too much with the PC. Look at the Jackal Shields, they're different. Look at the Plasma Pistol. Again, they were the ones to do it, though. And they brought it, and they brought us, you know, like the Flamethrower and Fuel Rod to Halo 1, or CE. So it's, it's very interesting of their background within this and saying, hey, we kind of want to do our own thing. What do we do? They had the experience porting games. Let's talk about their development. When Gearbox was done working on Brothers in Arms, they were wanting to create something similar, but couldn't help looking back to one of their older projects, Halo Combat Evolved. Gearbox was extremely impressed with how Halo was built, and furthermore, on how data-driven Bungie really was, and were influenced by their level design. They were influenced so much by the Spartan story that the vehicles in Borderlands are even modeled after those in Halo. They wanted to create something similar. Gearbox had finished the PC port of Halo Combat Evolved three years prior and wanted to combine that sort of intense first-person action 
with, quote, a game that had loot coming out of every orifice, as Newman put it. Pitchford's idea for Borderlands was Halo meets Diablo, the looter shooter, with the main mechanic revolving around looting dead enemies and cooperative gameplay. Influences for the game could be seen from media like Mad Max and the television series Firefly. Pitchford initially had a conversation with Martell about the concept of a looter shooter in 1999. Yeah, so the idea of it was spawned very early on. It's just that technology at the times couldn't do it. You know, you, you couldn't have something trying to think in the background and render, okay, this enemy will drop a common weapon, probably in this family of weaponry, but it also has to randomize the like specs of it. You know, and you didn't really have those type of AI bots, at least for gaming universe, that could handle something like that. So they had this idea for a bit and finally wanted to bring, you know, something like that into fruition. And development for the game started in 2005. There was a debate at the beginning of development about whether or not, at its core, Borderlands would be an FPS or an RPG. FPS won, but it would still try to blend the two genres. Many professionals in the industry laughed at the idea of Borderlands. Pitchford was told to either create an FPS or an RPG, but don't create a hybrid, you know, just stick to your lane type idea. As such, dialogue trees were never considered for this game since they simply wanted to make the game fun. So when they were saying, okay, it's an FPS first, with RPG elements, so we don't necessarily want to have you stopping the action to then talk to this character, figure out what they want, and then continue shooting and looting. As we know, all of the worst games are the ones that tried to expand on ideas. Yes. That's sarcasm. All the ones that tried new things, terrible. No, but I, I think it's good for this game, though. And as they started concepting the game, they looked at the shooters of the time, with most of them heavily relying on gray and brown color tones with a serious, gritty art style that reflected popular dystopian sci-fi movies. A small team of artists would start concepting the art style for the game. A sci-fi setting similar to Mass Effect was considered, another one that resembled Gears of War, and an anime-style game that would be similar to Ghost in the Shell. They settled on a realistic art style that was gritty, retro, and mechanical. For about a year after this, there was a debate on what the game should be called. For a while, the studio was leaning towards Pandora, the name of the planet in the game. They settled on Borderlands, which was one of the harder decisions to make when developing the game. Additionally, naming the planet was tricky. Some felt that if the planet was named Pandora, fans would make the quick connection with Pandora's box. But they felt that it's okay to be a little obvious sometimes. The Borderlands team would continue to grow, leading to the creation of a demo for the game. In 2006, the game was greenlit and development had begun, with the goal of presenting a demo at the 2007 Games Convention in Leipzig, Germany, where the game was first revealed. I I do like that, that Pandora is a a great name for either the game or the planet, because you are basically this Pandora's box of like limitless everything. So it's kind of cool that that's what they were trying to base it off of and then when they named the planet it's like oh the player's going to figure out about the vault you know or figure out something about it but i mean you had to kind of be obvious with it and most of the time like let's say let's say you and i found a planet like this or like it's limitless vault i'd probably call it pandora too when you make a game that is a little cheeky and a little fun like i think it's okay when you choose something that might be a little bit more obvious you're not trying to hide all these details you're just trying to make something that's fun for the player 
Yeah, and unfortunately, the beginning art style they had really wasn't there. After demoing the game in 2008 at E3 with a pre-alpha build, the game and all updates essentially disappeared from the public eye. By October the same year, things were not looking good for the game. Gearbox had built the Gearbox Truth Team, a group of game testers that had backgrounds in psychology. They had concluded that game testers were not sold on Borderlands as it was. Fallout 3 had just recently been released, and the game was being compared to it, along with being called a poor man's rage. Furthermore, players felt a disconnect between the gritty art style and the -the over-the-top gameplay. At this point, the game was 75% finished, and now the studio is faced with what to do, push through with the game as it is, or change it drastically. They looked at how much time, money, and quality they had to work with. Even though the studio did not have a lot of money to dip into, they decided the game needed a change. The next question was, <laughs> what was going to change? But the answer was right in front of them, and I think they started to see that as well. I mean, they're being called a poor man's rage, which I think is one of the biggest insults of gaming ever, because uh, rage is an okay game, and to yeah. be called the poor man's version of rage, oof. Yeah, oof. that's definitely got bargain bin material written all over it. Yeah, it's like one of those things, like you said, Hits the shelves at 50 bucks. Next week, it's 40 Week after that, you can find it for $2 at Walmart. <laughs> so luckily, it didn't happen. Yeah. As the studio was reviewing concept art for the game, they saw that the concept art was more ink-lined, resembling comic books, and decided that was the art style to go with. Artist Brian Martell would go hide in a closet and work on a secret prototype for the game. They kept it secret at the time because Gearbox executives did not want a, quote, producer riot from employees who had spent three years developing the game as it currently stood. Supposedly, Pitchford did not know about the changes that were being made until they were presented to him. And the new art style was a blend of hand-drawn textures, digitally scanned and recolored in Photoshop, and worked into a software that creates the hand-drawn look of the characters. The characters' proportions were then changed in order to give them a further comic book look. And this is one of my favorite things about the Borderlands art style. Mm -hmm. I love comic books. I worked at the comic book store. I mean, and it's one of those things that we've seen now um, as a really popular form of cosplay. And I feel like it's always quality. It's always consistent. And it's just a really fun, like, 3D uh, presentation that we don't see. I 100% agree. You know, even if you didn't like this game, you have to understand that... That art style stands out. If you see any, even if you just see like a rock from the game, like just on its own, you go, oh, it's Borderlands. You know, there's not a lot of other games that you can see, especially shooters, that you could see just like an element of it and go, oh, that's that game. Or, you know, that's that. It it really stood out when they made these changes and necessarily so. The demo was presented to the rest of the team and everyone was excited for the change, including the 2K games team who did not originally know about the change. The original art director for the game was disheartened seeing all of her original work thrown out of the window for this new direction. She would not only leave Gearbox, but game development entirely. The studio would bring in a comic book artist to help with this new art direction. The studio also let designers work on design and solutions on their own. And Martel had this to say, quote, If we trust somebody and let them go off and do their thing, That's where the best stuff comes from. It's rare you get to see the end of a project and people want to keep working on it 
And that was the case here. So this is one of those things. I think it's also not really a Hail Mary in a way, but saying, hey, guys, make what you want. Like, let's see where this can go and let's see where we're going to take things because we may do well with it. We may not. But I think if everyone's engaged in a project, I think it becomes even better. I mean, it's the YOLO style, right? Like, if if you're looking at being the poor man's rage and you've got nothing to lose, mm-hmm. then just, hey, go out there and do whatever it is you want to do. Get weird with it. Have fun. Oh, yeah. And that's how you keep people interested. You hear all those horror stories about last-minute game development, you know, ranging from the Rockstar series games to uh, even, you know, some of the Halos when they mm-hmm. came out. And it's nice and refreshing to see like a more lighthearted re- approach in the industry um and i think that's why borderlands came out so lighthearted and fun and they they made sure that they knew what they were doing and now that everyone seemed on board with this new art direction the next problem was presented making all these changes <laughs> in a short amount of time luckily the studio was so excited for the new direction that employees working on other projects were eager to help with Borderlands. Again, going back to that idea of if you bring everyone in on a group project and you get everyone jazzed about it, that's where you really get that passion and that, oh, 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 I want to put this weird gun in there. I'll definitely help with you doing the rocks. I'll definitely help with the new design of the characters. Like, let's all work together to get this project done. And you know it's good. When you have someone like peeking over your shoulder, like designing brothers in arms, being like, can I, can I, can I work on that too? Is that, is that plausible? Yeah. And of course, with the new art style, the humor was added as well. And beyond just the art style, the game mechanics were reworked. The more boring abilities were scrapped and current abilities needed to be more interesting, akin to those in fantasy RPGs. One ability that sparked from this was healing bullets. I remember them talking about this in an interview I was reading with it, and it was just kind of thrown out. Uh, They were just asking around, like, what's a wacky, zany thing? Like, what if you just shoot people, but it's the reverse? I mean, yeah, that's definitely something that I am not familiar with. Um, Other than outside of Borderlands, definitely not anything that I had heard of before. Really great idea, Mm -hmm. though. So much different than having to go and run directly up to someone and, you know, do the little, like, time thing. This is how long you have to heal them. Yeah, or, like, like stuff, you know, so. a, a beam or a health kit, you know, things that you're talking about with that. It changes it up. And going back to that phrase I keep saying, it, it turned everything on its head. It's like, what is something that doesn't happen, isn't real, is goofy as hell? What can we do with it? So things like that, obviously, they needed some kind of new technology. They needed do, new designs. and. To save time, they brought in technology from previous projects like Brothers in Arms, Hell's Highway. They also needed to take some shortcuts to save time. This led to the story of the fixated mood giving a single light source from the sky. And even though the art style had changed, a lot of the original designs were kept in the game, like the Psycho Enemy, which was almost identical to its original design. Other designs came into the game by accident, like the Claptrap robot, which originally just started out as a random sketch that it was a random assignment made by the Jira project management software. So it was one of those things where it kind of just gives you a challenge to kind of play around and get an idea going. And as it started to get fleshed out, people were like, oh, this actually this could kind of work on the direction we're going on. Why don't we try and flesh this out and figure out what we can do with it? Even though 
all these changes were being made, some at Gearbox were rather worried about them. For a while, they were not sure if they were doing the right thing. But as more and more developers were playtesting the game, they knew they were onto something. Unfortunately, the overall story fell to the wayside until the last minute, and it was written around the game mechanics. This also meant dialing back NPCs and dialogue that was unnecessary. The game was originally set to release in quarter 4, 2008, but was delayed, with no firm date on the release. In December 2008, a game tester tweeted that the game was about a year out and still needed some work, and they were fired shortly afterwards. In the tweet, he also compared it to Crackdown, which had many fans speculating on whether the comparison was due to the art style, game mechanics, or both. Speculation would continue on the change of art style when a screenshot from an interview with community manager NUI showed an image of the game, where it was compared to a comic book. When word started spreading about the new art style, Pitchford insisted that the game was not cel-shaded. Instead, Gearbox would refer to the new art style as concept art style. Ah, uh, yes, the classic art style of concept. So specific, they teach this at all of the major art institutions. Yeah, when you ask, what's the concept? They go, yes. And then that's pretty deep art terms, so you just win <laughs> awards for that. Uh, overall, and through all the design changes, the game took four and a half years to create. The PC version of the game would be delayed from October 20th, 2009 to October 26th, 2009. And this was just due to optimization for the PC. Yeah, just a couple weeks to... Not even a couple weeks, excuse me. Six, six days. days. You know, a couple weeks, six days, they're all the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we have the game going on. Let's talk about what it took to market this, because they had some interesting ideas. The game was first revealed as the cover story of Game Informer's September 2007 issue. After all the changes, Borderlands would make the cover of PC Gamer's June 2009 issue. So a couple years later, it comes out on the PC Gamer with this newer art style and less of that old kind of grays and browns. Though the cover was impressive enough, fans were ecstatic to find out that the cover was an in-game screenshot showing the new art style. It would also be fitting that Borderlands make its way back to Game Informer two years later for the September 2009 issue, again, showing that new art style, kind of comparing the old and the new between the two of them, which I thought was really cool, and to tell that story. The first trailer, though, for the game would debut at E3 07, showing the old art style with a woman talking about the vault on Pandora. So this is where people are first getting that look of the VO talking about, ooh, the unlimited treasures, what are you going to find here? And a little bit of the story element that does change from it, but still, I guess, stays to that true Borderlands idea that you're going to Pandora to find wealth and riches. And so after that first trailer came out, they released another trailer. It showed the new colorful art style over-the-top action and censored gore. All the while... Cage the Elephants Ain't No Rest for the Wicked played in the background. Alex, you and I saw Cage, Cage the Elephant uh, live in concert, didn't we? We did. I asked him how was Borderlands. <laughs> I didn't, but I should have. Yeah, that, that's actually very... And I'll say this about the Borderlands series. I'll cut myself off. They have done so well with their trailers and game intros. You know, using a popular artist at the time that has that Ain't No Rest for the Wicked-y feel to their songs. Kind of... Yeah. 
not cowboy-esque, but Western, modern feel to songs, kind of outlawish. Yeah. And it does so well. And the interest to all of their Borderlands games has been really, really cool with that. And, you know, in addition to that, they, they did a web series for Claptrap. And it was created just to promote Borderlands and the upcoming DLC. Most of the episodes contain pop culture references like the movie 300 and Bill O'Reilly's famous, we're doing it live, quote. It's, it's pretty good. And I'm so glad that they leaned into Claptrap. You know, you have plenty of other comic relief within the Bandits and the Psychos and a couple other things. But Claptrap, especially making his way through many of the games, was such a perfect idea of it's this robot that somewhat understands humanity and like has this human part to it, but doesn't. And everyone loves a little bit of goofiness, a little goof action. It's kind of like taking uh, the Oracle from Halo and making it just a little bit funnier, you know? Yes. Yeah. Getting like Guilty Spark and being like, hey. Put on that, hu- that, that uh, funny sensor. Let's jump over to the gameplay of Borderlands. If you haven't played it, I'll give you a breakdown of exactly what, yeah, what goes into it. What goes into playing Borderlands? Borderlands includes character-building elements found in role-playing games, leading the developer Gearbox Software to call the game a, quote, role-playing shooter. Looter shooter, RPG shooter, plenty of names for it. At the start of the game, players select one of four characters each with a unique special skill and with proficiencies with certain weapons. From then on, players take on missions assigned through non-player characters or NPCs uh, from bounty boards, each typically rewarding the player with experience points, money, and sometimes reward items such as a shield, weapon, and so on. Players earn experience by killing both human and non-human foes and completing in-game challenges, such as getting a certain number of kills using a specific weapon type. As they gain levels from experience growth, players can then allocate skill points into a skill tree that features three distinct specializations of base character. For example, Mordecai can become specialized in sniping, gunslinging with revolvers, or using his pet Bloodwing to assist in kills and health boosting. Players can distribute points among any of the specializations and can also spend a small amount of in-game money to redistribute their skill points. Players start the game with the ability to equip two weapons, but later gain up to four weapon slots, as well as slots for an energy shield, a grenade modification, and a class modification. Items collected can be sold back to vendors for money that then can be used to buy better items. One of the key features of Borderlands is the randomly generated weapons and items created, either as dropped by enemies found in storage chests about the game, on the ground, sold at vendors in the game, or as request reward items. The game uses a procedural content creation system to create these weapons and items, which can alter their firepower, rate of fire, and accuracy. It can add in elemental effects, such as the chance to set foes on fire or cover them in burning acid, and at rare times, other special bonuses, such as regenerating the player's ammo. A color-coded scale is used to indicate the rarity of the weapon or item. It was estimated that the random system could generate over 17 million variations of weapons, but actually only resulted in a little over 3.5 million. The procedural system is also used to create the characteristic of random enemies that the player may face. This allows for enemies of the same species to have widely varying attacks. For example, variations of the spider ants in the game could leap around and would jump onto players' faces 
while another variant can roll up into a ball and attack people, depending on the content generator. When in combat, the player can take damage if their shield is depleted, affecting their health. If they lose all their health, they must either wait to be revived by another player, or attempt to kill an enemy to achieve a second wind, or otherwise they will be regenerated back at the last new you station, which I love the name of, that, <laughs> that they pass, so like kind of your checkpoint, losing a ratio appropriate percent of their money in the process, usually about 10% or so. Players quickly gain access to two passenger vehicles and can engage in vehicular combat with other enemies. Eventually, a system of fast transit points between the game world is available to the player. Until then, players must do it the old way and walk, you know, to school and back to school through the snow and up the hill. The game can be played alone, but also supports two-player co-op play through split-screen on consoles, and up to four players playing co-op online or over LAN connection. The game follows the progress of the host player, rewarding the other active players for completion of quests for their characters. If the other players are doing the same quests in their campaign, the completed quests remain the same in their campaigns as well as the hosts. When more players are present, the game alters the statistics of generated enemies, balancing the game due to the larger number of players. Players can take part in one-on-one duels anywhere in the game world, or can visit arenas in the game world to participate in free-for-all, two-on-two, or three-on-one combat battles with their fellow players. The original title is Shipped for Windows used GameSpy servers for multiplayer modes. As a result of GameSpy's shutdown in 2013, 2K Games patched the game and moved the servers to Steam, as well as providing Steam versions of the game for those that purchased the title through retail channels. Yeah, so this allowed the players to do just so much more in the world, along with having like all those weapons, having the ability to, you know, you and I play co-op, or you and I, we go in toe-to-toe. Seeing who picked up the latest legendary, or just, honestly, some swag points, as they call it. I think that's, I think it's the official term. We just never listed it, but it's swag points. You got to make sure you have enough swag points to uh, get the drip going, as the kids say. <laughs> you can't, can't miss out on that drip. Can't miss out on it. So let's talk about the story of Borderlands. The game begins sometime after the Dahl Corporation's abandonment of the planet Pandora. Four vault hunters, Brick, Lilith, Mordecai, and Roland, arrive in search of the fabled vault. After discovering the town of Firestone, the Vault Hunters begin to receive a psychic instruction from a mysterious woman known as the Guardian Angel. The Vault Hunters meet a CL4P-TP, or Claptrap robot, and a doctor named Zed, who helped them establish a reputation by killing several bandit leaders and eventually leading to the collection of an alien artifact, being the first piece of a key needed to open the vault. This causes Patricia Tannis, Dahl's former archaeologist still in residence of the planet, to contact the Vault Hunters, revealing that the vault can only be accessed once every 200 years, and that the time of the next opening is approaching. Tannis also explains that three more artifacts are needed to complete the vault key. Meanwhile, Commandant Steele of the Crimson Lance, a well-outfitted military force led by the Atlas Corporation, threatens to declare martial law and demands the vault key pieces. 
The Vault Hunters secure the second and third pieces by following Tannis' instructions. But the final piece, supposedly in the possession of a bandit lord named Baron Flint, turns out not to be where it was expected. Steele contacts the Vault Hunters to reveal that there are in fact only three pieces and that Tannis has betrayed and misled them. Steele then disables the planet's echo network, preventing further communication with the Guardian Angel and anyone else. The Vault Hunters infiltrate the Crimson Lance's headquarters and find Tannis in prison. She claims she was forced into betrayal and urges the Vault Hunters to restart the Echo Network and stop Steel and the Crimson Lance before they reach the Vault. After restoring the network, the Guardian Angel directs the Vault Hunters towards Steel's location. During the final approach to the Vault, the Vault Hunters encounter Crimson Lance forces already locked in combat with the Vault's alien guardians. The Vault Hunters finally arrive at the Vault only moments too late to stop Steel from using the key. When the vault opens, a giant monster emerges and wipes out Steel and the rest of her troops. The Guardian Angel explains that the monster is called the Destroyer and was imprisoned in the vault long ago by the Iridians, the alien race who left behind the ruins and created the vault, in order to prevent the destruction of the universe, and that the Guardians were posted to prevent anyone from opening it. Although the vault hunters killed the Destroyer, the vault is resealed for another 200 years. The Guardian Angel is revealed to be transmitting her signals through a Hyperion satellite in orbit high above Pandora. The game ends with the satellite sending a signal to a claptrap robot on the planet, changing it into an interplanetary ninja assassin, which we later get to see a bit more about in the DLC. So it, it kind of ends on this random type cliffhanger of, hey, the vault was not what you expected it to be. Get ready for game number two. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. So that's that. That's that is the story of Borderlands. And again, going along with it and getting to know a lot of these characters as you start in Firestone and eventually get to meet more of the NPCs like Scooter, uh, who does the catch a ride that you'll see later on in the future games is really cool that they build upon these characters that will be in later editions of it. So like all the different machines that are either operated by Dr. Zed or Marcus, who runs basically a full munitions shop. Uh, is really, really cool and, and starts us off on this journey of knowing a little bit about like Atlas Corp, you know, Iridian weapons and who, who are they as far as Pandora is concerned and the start of what is going to be a, a really cool franchise. And I mean, let's be honest, as far as the story goes in Borderlands, it's not really the main attraction to the game. The entertainment devil is in the details. It's all the mm -hmm. little things that happen in between the very critical plot points. And so one of those big details is obviously the guns. Um, another one is the guns. And then there's the guns. Oh, yes. And so <laughs> you, got, you, got, you got all three of those right. I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking if we're thinking of another thing, it's probably how cool the uh, guns are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about the guns. So as we said earlier, there's an AI that was created that 
actually creates the weapons, the gear builder system. Gearbox would feed this AI weapons manufacturers that they created, along with materials they're made out of, classes, components, and let the AI go from there. The AI would create millions of guns. And according to Gearbox software, there are over 17,750,000 different variations of weapons in Borderlands as of its release. Eh, well, you know, we know, we know that's like 3.5 million, but let Gearbox have this day. <laughs> Borderlands uses a procedural process to generate its various guns in certain classes, such as handguns, shotguns, assault rifles, sniper rifles, and more, but with many variations of firing speed, reload speed, damage type, and more. And so now we're going to break down each of the manufacturers and some of the, the traits of their weaponry and give a little bit of background on it. So we'll start with Atlas Corporation. They have above average damage and magazine capacity. Atlas guns tend to have high damage and fire rate without sacrificing magazine capacity and reload. Indeed, Marcus Kincaid sometimes says, buy an Atlas and you will know what it is like to hold the power of the gods in your hands. Atlas guns tend to be among the rarest guns in the game. Despite their overwhelmingly powerful portrayal in the game, this does not mean Atlas guns are always the right choice. Next up, we have Dahl. High recoil reduction at the cost of accuracy. Dahl firearms tend to have elevated recoil reduction. Their weapons are said to be marketed to mercenaries and used by their own forces, and are generally finished in a green camouflage print some rarer doll guns are seen like desert or urban camo. And doll weapons are mostly named after animals, which is what it should be. Because who doesn't love a good puma? <laughs> after that, of course, we've got the Iridian. It's an alien weaponry. Deals generally high damage with unlimited ammunition, but often suffers from slow recharge. They appear organic, easily told apart from normal weapons. There's the Hyperion which have very high recoil reduction and accuracy. Hyperion provides new use station services and is one of the chief weapon manufacturers on Pandora. They manufacture submachine guns, combat rifles, slash assault rifles, repeater pistols, rocket launchers, shotguns, and sniper rifles. Hyperion weapons are made of dark pink, red, silver, or black metals of a sort and have greater accuracy and damage when compared to guns of similar levels. In Borderlands, weapons produced by this manufacturer are harder to find than most others, with only Atlas guns being harder to find. In Borderlands 2, Hyperion guns are much more common. Yeah, because in, in Borderlands 2, Hyperion is kind of the main enemy, or the main manufacturer enemy, so you find those a lot, a lot more. Next up, we have good old Jacobs. Never manufactures elemental weapons, very high damage, but with lower fire rate and recoil reduction. Jacob specializes in manufacturing the single-action revolvers, bolt-action sniper rifles, various shotguns and assault rifles in a classic style, with iconic stocks made from genuine wood. Yeah, Jacobs, you eventually meet uh, later along, especially in Borderlands 3, but the Jacobs are kind of that, that classic look to, like, Americana guns, like nice wood finishes, ornate inlays, just a pretty gun. That accent's got me wanting to play a hunting game now. Thank you. Hey, that's what, that's what the Jacobs do here, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have Maliwan. Only manufactures elemental weapons, which have much higher tech regeneration rates. Also benefits from marginal increases to accuracy and reload speed. 
Their weapons are typically based around some form of elemental technology, with their main source of damage normally being in DPS over time. Base firepower in particular seems to suffer as a trade-off, unfortunately. Malawan weapons are distinguished by their bright, contrasty colors, sleek weapon designs, and futuristic bullets such as energy bolts, balls, or beams. BBBs. BBBs, BB. <laughs> SNS munitions, let's talk about them. Very high magazine capacity. Usually manufactures elemental weapons. Their weapons have greater magazine sizes and deeper tech pools than most other manufacturers and a slightly increased damage at the expense of having long reload times. SNS utilizes a black and yellow finish on their guns to distinguish them from the competition. There's the Tidiore, or the Tidier, extremely fast reload speed with a slight compromise on damage and accuracy. The Tidier prides itself on being the common man brand, providing cheap and accessible guns to all. Fittingly, their marketing focus has always been family-oriented and comparable to real-life budget companies, with advertisements that boast the affordability of their guns and encouraging their customers to buy their weaponry in bulk. So it's basically, it's basically the Walmart or the Costco of the manufacturers. That's just American right there. <laughs> and there's Torg, high damage and slightly higher fire rate, but suffers from a much lower accuracy and recoil reduction, which is to be expected. Lastly, we have the Vladov. Very high fire rate. I can't do a Russian accent. <laughs> Good recoil reduction, but suffers from much lower accuracy. Vladov weapons tend to have lower accuracy, but also have extremely high fire rate of fire. Yeah, I still can't do it. Two other guns of similar level rating. Their firearms can often be identified by an orange-brown finish with gray or white accents. They follow a Russian and East European-themed naming scheme. Mm -hmm. Vladov weapons boost to rate of fire are calculated in a manner that causes guns with a lower baseline rate of fire to gain a larger boost, and weapons with a larger baseline rate of fire to gain a smaller boost. In other words, if it's good, it's good. If it's bad, it's sometimes good. There's your explanation for it. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about, you know, we've talked about the manufacturers of it. Let's talk about the rarity and what it takes to find some of these guns. Borderlands uses a classification system for gear that follows a color coding system for RPGs, which was pioneered by Blizzard's Diablo. A common or white gun would be average. Uncommon, green, would be slightly above average. Rare, blue, would be a premium gun. A very rare, purple, would be a very strong gun. And legendary, orange guns are second only to pearlescent, which are like the, the ultra mega super duper, super duper pooper scooper rare. <laughs> and the rarity of each gun is indicated by color as stated with each gun. So as you pick it up, you'll see it's either going to be like have like a white peak to it, green, blue, and so on. I heard a rumor that there is actually a pooper scooper as a weapon in this game. Uh, if not, needs to be there. <laughs> Flavor text is red text found on unique, legendary, and pearlescent weapon item cards just above any stat modifiers. Usually cryptic or humorous, these lines usually give a hint of what a weapon's special ability does and have often a reference to a video game, movie, or any number of non-game thing. And they've done so well with that. It's always fun to pick one of those up and just kind of either guess at what they're referencing or know immediately be like, you made me, you made air come out of my nose. That's a good gun. <laughs> 
And so, of course, with the weapons, there were status effects, and the elemental effects include incendiary, shock, explosive, and corrosive. The damage of the elemental effect is a multiplier indicated by the elemental plaque in a times n in the weapon description where n is a number from 1 to 4. The chance an elemental effect will occur depends on the difference between the level of the character and the level of the enemy. On all Malawan weapons, a weapon description will include text reading chance to cause elemental effect or high elemental effect chance. Could also say higher elemental effect chance or very high elemental effect chance. It's it's honestly it's a very cryptic system, but <laughs> I'm glad we're here to really hashtag let you know what's up. Um, which is the only one I'm gonna start to describe these things. So hashtag let you know what's up. If it's very high, it might have a very high chance to uh cause elemental effect. You may say that uh these four descriptors are the one to four number that uh, may or may not have effects on the multiplier. And, and I think only the hashtag brainiest of the brainiest, uh, I'm only using hashtags for the rest of this episode, by the way, um, <laughs> only the hashtag brainiest of the brainiest might have connected that. And that's why we are hashtag here for you. Hashtag, I'm done. <laughs> hashtag elemental attacks are added to the base damage of the weapons used and can have secondary benefits such as splash damage effect on multiple enemies. Each element has a specific benefit to use against different enemies. Alex, why don't you tell us about those? Oh, we, got, we got four. Just like we got an N4, we got four different ones we can have, which includes fire, and it's effective against enemies with unshielded flesh and may cause a target to burn for a length of time. There is a chance the fire will spread to nearby opponents. Next, we have shock, which is effective against shields, but is less effective against flesh with natural armor, such as chitinous plating, than a normal weapon of the same type. So if you're just using a pew-pew gun, it'll actually do more damage than a zap-zap gun. It also has a chance of briefly stunning an enemy. Explosive weapons, obviously, have a chance for an explosive round to hit an enemy, dealing massive critical hits and exploding those who are weak to it. And finally, you have corrosive which is effective against armored enemies, such as like that chitinous plating, slowly draining health and making them weaker to other attacks as the ongoing damage progresses. There is a chance that the acid will spread to nearby opponents. And Derek, why don't you tell them about each element has its own specific death animation. Fire slowly incinerates the target. Human victims will scream while burning. No trace of the victim will remain. There's shock. It makes lightning arc up and down a target's body, eventually leading to the head exploding. The victim will leave a headless corpse and a few giblets. Just a, just a few giblets. Just some giblets. Just some giblets. Explosive about. also got some giblets, but there is a loud bang, and it reduces the victim completely to those giblets. To only, to only giblets. <laughs> to just, just the giblets. And lastly, for our corrosive death animations, rapidly liquefied target human victims scream while they melt and no trace of the victim will remain that means of course no giblets no so yeah basically you're gonna go do you want giblets or not that's how you're gonna be able to pick your elemental effects this game was actually originally called uh border giblets jibbies or no jibbies (laughs) 
All right. So now that we've talked about all the giblets one can have without being outside of Thanksgiving dinner, let's talk about the DLC. The DLC was a way for Gearbox to scratch the narrative itch that many fans had after playing the base game. Gearbox also knew that fans would simply want more, so they quickly started work on the next chapter for Borderlands. Gearbox essentially told fans about working on DLC before the game was even released, which did anger some fans because they thought that that content should have been included in the game or that it was just cut content that was already done. There was some content that was cut from the original game that was put into the DLCs, but it was cut due to time constraints with that change in art style. So fans were right, but they were, I mean, really wrong with it. And this happens a lot, even in modern day games of companies finishing a game, waiting for everything else to be polished up for it for production, or like for outsourcing and production and getting out to the masses that they can work on some other ideas and DLC they have. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship I know that fans have with DLCs, microtransactions, but it's kind of a necessary evil to fill that gap between game to game. You know, when the game finally goes gold, okay, it's ready for production. Mm-hmm. There is just a manufacturing time period, and this is something that's always just kind of baffled me. Um, you know, day one DLC has got such a negative connotation to it. It's like, why am I buying this game at $60 and there was extra content that could have been there in this game, but it's not. And you're making me pay even more money for that additional content that you have ready on this day. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up, I think, in this era of cartridge gaming, I mean, where everything on the cartridge is like what I got. It's just it's weird to me. It's it's cool that there's even any additional content at all. Because I think of like buying an N64 game and what I got was what I got. And if it sucked, it sucked. And DLC now has a way to to update and patch issues and things like that. And in my opinion, it's only beneficial. And spending a little extra money sucks sometimes. but It does, but it does allow the studio to catch up in some of those realms. You know, before, when you're talking PC era of that, you had expansion packs. You know, where you'd get like this new expansion of the game that was almost another full game. But it takes a long time to build out, takes a whole other engine to build it on top of. So to have these mini DLC releases of it in these little sections, and we saw it in a lot of games, most games have it just to bring you more content with it. So unfortunately they had it, but even in Borderlands terms, when you're talking about the DLC, it adds so much content to the game, even like different locations and narrative stories, even in like Borderlands 2. Tina, along with a couple of other characters, do a D&D campaign where you're the D&D character. And, like, and they will be like, oh, no, 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 they weren't fighting skeletons. They were fighting this enemy. So like all the enemies in front of you disappear and they become this enemy. Or Tina will be like, no, 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 that's a super badass, gory enemy. And it becomes this badass who's like 10 times harder to be like, oh, my God. That's fun. Yeah. I remember so- buying like an Xbox. I, I don't know if you did this, but the multiplayer maps for Halo 2. I had to buy a separate disc for mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. go to GameStop and get all that stuff uploaded. And that's all that it was. It was just in, I think there may have been like a video or something that's like, Hey, you want to see behind the scenes of Halo? Yep. This kind of stuff has been going on for a long time. And uh, I think more than anything, as long as the DLC is good DLC, that's what really matters at the end of it. It is. Let's talk about the first one. We had the zombie Island of Dr. Ned. This new DLC featured new enemies, quests, and loot. 
The DLC takes place in Jacob's Cove, and the overall story for this DLC was written in about a week in an attempt to keep workers alive. Dr. Ned actually turns them into zombies. <laughs> so you basically have to work with him to kind of get this reversal going. The DLC was released November 24th, 2009 for the Xbox 360 and PS3, and on December 9th, 2009 on PC via Steam. The DLC released a week after Left 4 Dead 2, but Pitchford claims the DLC is simply for people who like Borderlands and want to improve their experience playing the game. Many speculate that the DLC was a direct call to action regarding the rise in zombie games. So, who's to say? Hey, it makes sense. There was a lot of zombie stuff at that time. Of mm-hmm. course, after that, there was Mad Moxie's Underdome Riot. And in this DLC, Mad Moxie, who is in search of her fourth husband, makes arenas to help her on her marital quest. Though in these arenas you cannot earn any experience, you can earn experience in the missions. It was released December 29, 2009 for Xbox 360, and sometime later it was released on PlayStation 3 and PC. Next up, we have the Secret Armory of General Knox. This DLC continued the story from the base game and was Gearbox's biggest DLC at the time. In this DLC, an Atlas rogue agent Athena is looking to take down Atlas. General Knox is tasked with taking her down. If you help Moxie take down her ex-husband, she will aid you in your fight against Knox. This is the first expansion to introduce pearlescent rarity weapons in the game, and it was released February 23rd, 2010 for the Xbox 360 and February 25th, 2010 for PS3 and PC. Lastly, there was Claptrap's New Robot Revolution, and this DLC contains the story of a group of brainwashed Claptrap robots led by the ninja assassin seen at the end of the base game. The goal of this new army is simple, destroy humanity for years of mistreatment. And it was released on September 28th, 2010. So along with DLC and the idea of keep playing the game, Borderlands definitely encourages multiple playthroughs. So after completing the game's story, players are free to roam the world to complete any side missions left unfinished, drop the vault key off to Patricia Tannis to collect a hefty reward, or wander around to fight enemies and gather more loot. Upon returning to the title screen, selecting the same character to continue play also provides the option to begin playthrough 2. At the beginning of playthrough 2, characters keep all the gear, skills, levels, and money that they ended playthrough 1 with, and the level of all the game's enemies scales up, beginning at level 34 and ascending from there. The names of enemies also adjust to reflect the difficulty settings. So Psycho becomes Maniac Lunatic, Midget to Little Stunted, and Bruiser to Brute Bully. And I love that in games. I love that there are certain games, in my opinion, that are almost easier as the game progresses. I think Mm -hmm. Legend of Zelda is a really good example of that. Once you start to have more weaponry at your disposal, the game just naturally becomes a little bit easier because you're not as limited in your uh, ability to attack opponents. So having these games where they built it up to where you can do that second playthrough and still keep those same skills, but they acknowledge finally like, hey, this game would have been maybe more fun for you later on if we had scaled everything up with you. Want to try it again? I mean, I I almost think it needs to be a standard. Especially if you're going to have a game that is 
linear in this sense. You know, it has a start and a finish. There's not just like a Minecrafty element to it, which I guess does have a finish, but it's kind of just play it. Yeah. This has a finite finish, and it says, hey, you want to play it again? Round two. And a lot of the games that do that, it just makes it so much more fun, and it keeps players within that ecosystem. You know, like if I finish Borderlands, and it's just like, do you want to keep playing and just level up randomly, or do you want to start a new game? But for this to say, hey, you want to start a new game? Keep your stuff. But everyone's much harder, and the challenge is still there. I mean, sign me up for that every time. And so Borderlands does it even better. After the completion of the story missions in Playthrough 2, all of the enemies scale again, ranging from 48 to 52, and are again renamed from Maniac to Lunatic, Little to Stunted, and Brute to Bully. Players can revisit and battle the game's enemies and most bosses for better gear, participate in cooperative play, and fight in arenas. Referred to in the community as Playthrough 2.5, This marks the end of Playthrough 2's storyline. Any side missions that have not been accepted will continue to scale to the player character's level until they are accepted. This also carries over to DLCs, significantly increasing their difficulty. So smart. Again, we're going to reiterate it again. It's so smart to keep players in that ecosystem and to keep people having fun with it. I mean, that's what I loved about Borderlands was you can get somewhat overpowered with some of the weapons you find, but as you continue to level up, it does a little less damage. It takes a little longer with it. And you, you need to find better and better gear and just understand your opponents better who are getting bigger buffs, doing more damage. Their weapons are swapping out to be either like more exotic or to have different fire rates with it. So the, the AI built into creating these enemies was such a smart idea and has driven a lot of people into that idea of the Diablo-esque, the Borderlands-esque loot systems, the, the ranging of enemies. And both of those games still do it so well to this day. We've been talking about it a little bit. Let's bring it over to the multiplayer. Even though the game was heavily emphasized by its four-player cooperative play, the PvP side of the game left something to be desired. At any time or place, a player can melee another player to issue a challenge. If the melee is returned, a one-on-one duel starts. And this would, you know, we'd, we'd be in this like little arena, this little makeshift arena that would be around you with this blue barrier to keep you in there. And if you lose, you just lost ammunition and your pride. And that's about it. Players can also travel to arenas located at various locations in the game world. These arenas are specifically made for competitive play, where players can face off in both free-for-all games or team-based games. Completing those duels or arenas are solely for the purpose of fun. No items are awarded or lost, except for ammo. Players can easily drop in and drop out of someone else's campaign, and the difficulty, number of enemies, etc. adjust to how many players are present. So this is where I think Borderlands shines really, really well. I'm a solo player in a lot, but as Derek had said, you know, he and I kind of started this. I played it a while before him, but got him into it and got some other friends so we could jump into our Xboxes and just be able to play with each other. And having that drop-in, drop-out system... I don't understand why more games can't do that or figure out how it works in present day. Yeah. Because it is so easy to do. And I guess the most recent that we're seeing is uh, Outriders that is allowing you to jump in and jump out, have some scaled enemies. And it's somewhat compared to Borderlands. I don't think it's really Borderlands, but it has the same idea with it. And so that's the multiplayer I love. Instead of having to create a lobby, get people in, I just want to be playing. Derek jumps in for, you know, let's say an hour or so, and then hops out. Yep. 
and everything kind of just scales with whatever the difficulty needs to be at the time and just a nice easy flow. As with every game that we talk about, and especially with this one in particular, the art direction was so, so important. The music creating the setting is so important. Absolutely. And the Borderlands original soundtrack was a large collaboration effort. Being composed by Gearbox audio lead Rayson Varner, Chris Velasco, Jesper Kidd, and Sasha Dekishin, as well as Sonic Mayhem, with additional DLC music written by Josh Davidson. Talking about the process, Varner would say, Kid handled all the largest areas in the game where the player would spend a lot of time exploring. Velasco and Dekishin really nailed the bandit sound early on, so they provided the aggressive bandit music. The team was chosen specifically for their own musical styles to accomplish the specific sounds they were wanting. Varner for his dark ambience, Velasco and Dekishin for their gritty electronic sound, and Kid for his dreamlike soundscapes. Over the period of 1.5 years, the team would work to recreate their ideal image of the darkness and violence found within the game, mainly through the mixture of high-tech and low-tech sci-fi sounds. These varied from basic-sounding machinery noise to smooth and futuristic electronic pulses, with the underlay containing many guitars and drums that were recorded live. Sample libraries were then used to reinforce many of the synthetic sounds that Varner built from scratch. The Borderlands original soundtrack was released on December 8, 2009 through Something Else Music Works, containing 27 tracks for a total of 62 minutes and 3 seconds. While the game was somewhat criticized for its non-hummable melodies, many music fans agree the soundtrack brings a unique sense of atmosphere and consistency. During a review for OriginalSoundVersion.com, Jason Napolitano would say this about the music, quote, If you're into atmosphere, and I mean dark and bloody atmosphere, then I can't recommend this album enough. At their release, all four DLCs would contain several new tracks composed by Varner and Josh Davidson. Moxie's Underdome Riot would move the sound of the game in a brand new direction, introducing fast-paced modern dance music influenced by Boys Noise, Wolfgang Gartner, and Deadmau5. And in September of 2020, we saw the release of the Borderlands vinyl set featuring all the original and DLC music, of which... I do not own. <laughs> oh, come on, man. You it's love in this my, game. Listen, listen. It's in my aftermarket cart, but it's going for like $100, and the original sale price was $35. So it's so hard to justify it. Worth it. <laughs> so let's talk about the release versions. We had the Xbox 360, PS3, and PC. We also had the Game of the Year edition, which included all of the DLCs. The Mac Game of the Year edition which includes the Macintosh port, the Apple port with all the DLCs. Game of the Year Enhanced Edition, released 10 years after the game's initial release. It includes all DLC, 4K resolution, and HDR support for the game, and is playable on the PC, Xbox One, and PS4 with four-player split-screen modes. And for the Switch, we had the Borderlands Legendary Collection. And with this, you got Borderlands Game of the Year, Borderlands 2, Borderlands the Pre-Sequel, along with piles of bonus add-on content for each game, adding about 100-plus hours to keep playing them Borderlands, baby. Dang. Plenty of content out there 100 for 100 hours. That's like 100 hours. That's More a long than 99. Time. More than 99. So, general reception. 
of, of this game. A group of employees went to a local GameStop for a midnight release, and this GameStop was supposedly the highest-ranked GameStop in terms of pre-orders. And when the employees arrived, they played the game with fans, had a small round table, and signed copies of the game. Lead programmer Jimmy Sieben ended up buying a copy of Borderlands while he was there, since it wouldn't be another week or two until he got his hands on a copy himself. And he had the GameStop employees sign his copy and thank them for the work they did selling the game. Aww. The game sold 3 million units less than six months after its release, making it the best-selling new IP at the time, and in less than two years, the game would sell 4.5 million units worldwide. Some compared the overnight success of the game to that of Bioshock, a game that went against the grain of first-person shooters and still stood out. Borderlands earned an average of 82 out of 100 on Metacritic across the initial release. IGN named it the 35th best modern video game. The game came in second as the game of the year behind Demon's Soul. That actually surprises me a lot. Borderlands is something that, and and maybe it's just the legacy aspect of Borderlands where Demon's Soul doesn't have the same legacy, but I, I am surprised by that. Well, I would have to disagree on that because we are seeing, I guess, a more niche fandom when it comes to Demon's Soul or Demon's Souls with it, because you have the re-release on the PS5 now, which is honestly actually selling the console. And we, ha- we didn't really know of the legacy until we started to get more of the Soulsborne series. So when we get to Dark Souls and Bloodborne and the rest of them like, that are coming out with it, we see it now, but at the time, I guess it's hard to say, because I know you and I, and for a lot of people, it wasn't, Demon's Soul wasn't a huge title on people's mind. Yeah. At least in our circle. For sure. I think about Dark Souls a lot. It's just, maybe it's just that small difference between the two, just having the different names. You know, I I think about the legacy Borderlands 1, 2, and 3 as game of the year. Dark Souls, obviously a fantastic game, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to take away from that at all. But Borderlands, to me, um, was something that really stood out, and maybe it's just uh, my own personal flavor. (laughs) The old, hey, listen, when you got to take yourself to Flavortown, you know what you're getting into. Guy Fieri has inspired me to love Borderlands. (laughs) Now, many would criticize the game for having a rather lackluster and bare-bones story, but this was due to it simply being an aspect that had to sit by the wayside until the overall mechanics and look of the game were finalized. Luckily, fans were rather satisfied with the narrative they received from the DLC as it continued the story. Gearbox would also make sure that this lack of story would not be an issue in the sequel to the game. Borderlands is the result of looking at the competition and deciding to compete in a different direction altogether. The game in its inception would have potentially failed, if not for Gearbox realizing a change needed to be made, and quickly. Borderlands seemingly turned into a gaming phenomena when it was released, with gamers and cosplayers alike falling in love with the gorgeous new art direction. Tack on the smooth gameplay, the seemingly endless amount of different weapons, and glorious loot, you have Borderlands at its core. A game with a brilliant world, fast-paced gameplay, and dark humor that will go down as proof that you do not always have to play by the rules when developing a AAA title. So yeah, so that is our coverage of the old Borderlands. And Derek, start it off. Why did we choose this game? Why, why is this a game to your heart? Well, we chose this game because Alex really likes it. You're not wrong. <laughs> no, I, it is a really fun game, man. And um, I'm I'm ashamed. Like, 
I don't I think this is another game that I didn't really finish at the time. It was a lot of fun and it was fun to play with you. I think I had like first person shooter fatigue maybe at that point. But just talking about this with you now, watching like the videos that I've seen of people playing Borderlands one, watching you stream Borderlands three, like I'm gonna go back and play this game all the way through. I'm gonna go back and play this game all the way through and just really try and experience it. Um I still have it on Xbox three sixty. So just going to experience it the way that it came out. You know, the things that I remember about it, really loving like the leveling system. I think that's always really cool in any video games when you get some Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it's not just like a Legend of Zelda where, you, you know, you get new unlockable weapons, you know, you get to choose specific paths, the RPG elements um, to a game like Borderlands in the, the looter shooter format is uh unique and exciting to me and especially for the time totally so i'm gonna give this a number rating the standard rating system accepted Mm. by (laughs) most would most would disagree but continue (laughs) accepted by most in the the wiki uh the wiki 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 world the 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 wiki ers i don't know what they are people who write wikis um i'm gonna give this an eight out of ten i think it's um, out of the episodes we've recorded, probably my favorite so far. Understandable, understandable. I, I mean, I get, I get where you get those numbers from. I get that most of you can only count to ten, so I appreciate that. That's where you go with numbers, and you just throw some random things out there. They mean nothing. Let's get to a true score. If I had to rate this, I would give this probably some boom shakalakas out of claptrap. That's a positive. Add in. Catch a ride with Scooter, because we love, love that, love that. Uh, minus Zed, wasn't a big fan of Zed, but he's a cool doctor. If, if you have doctor things, he needs that. Multiply all of this by just sheer humor. Basically, if you just give me a game where there's no visuals or text, where you just tell me some jokes, you got me hooked. And I would take all of that out of how disappointing Cage the Elephant was live. So. Okay, take, I can take get that, on board with that. Take take that score as you may. That is my rating of Borderlands. That's the best score you've given yet. <laughs> get on that, Wikiers. Get that into the wikis. It's yeah, real get, specific. Get, get the very true score going there for you. <laughs> as always, research for this episode was done by Alex Kendall, Jesse Reiners, Evan Barr, and Richard Scanlon. The intro and outro music were composed and recorded by Evan Barr. And as always, we love them. We, we, we cherish what they've done, but more importantly, let's thank those who are supporting us a little monetarily. As you've heard, we do have a Patreon, which we're getting an update here now, so you probably will see it boop, right there. just happened. Wow, crazy. Check out those new things that we've added. Uh, so yeah, so our Patreon is direct support to us. It also gets you some exclusive content, exclusive merch, and plenty of other things. If you have any recommendations for us, hit us up. If you're like, hey, I love seeing stuff like this. Would you be interested in that? Let us know. And let's thank those patrons today. We have Tactics, Sky the Bear, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Count Fung Feliciano, Alex Harper, Dilfix, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Semechki, Climbing Spork, Mr.1898, William Kroll, Cameron Collier, and Mr. Toot. So thank you all again. Truly appreciate it. If you haven't yet and you want to stay up to date with the latest Finish the Fight podcast news, make sure you follow us on all our socials, Instagram, Twitter, and please join our Discord. It's free to join. 
And we have a lot of fun there interacting with everyone in our community. Absolutely. And if you are looking for a little bit more content, uh, more of my dumb face and my really dumb voice, <laughs> go ahead and check me out over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0, where we're playing some of the latest titles, some classicos, and uh, just having fun with you guys. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and your favorite podcast listening platforms. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review. It helps us immensely going forward with the podcast. We appreciate hearing feedback from our fans. Absolutely. And to kind of tap that off, if you do have feedback, if you have anything, as Derek had said, reach out. What do you like? What do you want to recommend? What do you want to hear next? Let us know. And with that, that is our conclusion of the immensely popular and beautiful game that Alex has sleeping next to his bed, Borderlands. And I am your host, as always, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And this is Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.